Warning, this episode contains conversations about drug abuse and overdose, violence and sexual abuse. While drug abuse has plagued America for many decades, in the past two, we have seen a shocking and tragic rise in overdose deaths. As reported by the CDC, from 1999 to 2021, nearly 645,000 people died from an overdose involving an opioid. Over 75% of the nearly 107,000 overdose deaths in 2021 involved an opioid. A massive increase in death began in 2013, correlated with synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Fentanyl can be up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine, and has become the primary composite in drugs sold as street opioids. Fentanyl is now responsible for over 150 overdoses per day. Recently, a new drug, xylazine, has entered 90% of Philadelphia's opioid drug supply, according to a report from the city, causing a variety of challenges and complications, and ultimately increasing the amount of death and suffering related to the issue of opioid addiction. Today I'm talking with Adam Al-Assad. Adam is the co-founder and operations director of Savage Sisters, a Philadelphia-based grassroots organization that fights opioid addiction through harm reduction, outreach, education, and a network of recovery houses. Adam talks about the creation of Savage Sisters, the programs they offer, and the holistic approach they take to recovery. He also discusses some common misconceptions around addiction and some of the challenges and frustrations he faces in the work that he does and gives light to ways in which people can help and get involved. Adam, thank you for coming on today. Can you introduce yourself? So I am Adam Al-Assad. I am the co-founder and director of operations at Savage Sisters Recovery. I am also our founder and fearless leader, Sarah's younger brother. I got involved with Savage Sisters from the very beginning when my sister Sarah began her recovery journey after dealing with substance issues for almost 10 years, dealt with some pretty traumatic stuff, ended up going out a window, breaking her hip, a couple other things, but she was wheelchair bound and she was in rehab and she got out and she went into a local recovery home in South Philly where I lived at that time. I was going to school full-time at Philly Community College while also working full-time as a direct care worker for an old friend of mine, Tommy, who has since passed, who had muscular dystrophy and was wheelchair-bound. But at that time, Sarah had just gotten into recovery. She just moved into a recovery house in South Philly, and her experiences weren't great at that recovery house. And then she moved into another recovery house, and her experiences were significantly worse at that one. The one went from, you know, lacking in resources, and the other one was just wildly unethical. There were sex trafficking, medication sales, people actively getting high, people trading sex for rent. It was a lot of really dark stuff going on in those recovery houses that she was staying in. I mean, bottom line, they were unregulated recovery houses for women that were run and owned by men, which giant red flag right there. You really can't have recovery houses for women that are run by men, in my opinion, ever. That's just not a a good thing to have. So she asked me, I had been saving up my entire life just about to buy a house to move into to get out of my little one bedroom apartment. And right around the time that I got it and was about to move in, she was like, Hey, can I 
have your house and turn it into a recovery house so I can get these girls out of this shithole and bring them into that house and, and start this project that I have, Savage Sisters. And that was that. We certainly didn't make any money, but we definitely did help some people. And she stayed sober for the first time in 10 years. So it was definitely worth it. Eventually, as I said, it was not financially a secure decision. You don't really make money off of recovery houses if you're going to run them ethically, which, you know, our whole goal was to provide a lot of resources to these women in early recovery. Actually, I shouldn't say ours. It was hers. I was just giving her the house. I had nothing to do with it besides that and, you know, collecting the the mortgage check every month. But we managed to just barely pay off the mortgage each month, which was nice. So I didn't lose money. And then eventually I did have to sell the house because my whole goal was to get out of my one bedroom apartment, not to remain in it for the rest of my life. So I did sell it to my cousin who then kept it as a Savage Sisters recovery house. The, the deal was, I will only sell it to you if you are willing to keep it as a, a Savage Sisters house. So that was our first house. And it's still a Savage Sisters house. There's six women living in it in their recovery right now. I have since moved out of my one-bedroom apartment, which has been really nice and gotten my own place. But it did take a while. And that is originally how we started. From there, though, once we opened that first house, Sarah kind of just kept the ball rolling and started our next two programs. So as I said, housing was our first program. And then we began our outreach slash harm reduction program. And then eventually we began our education program. The outreach program simply started as a response to Sarah trying to reach her friends that were still getting high in Kensington. So shortly after she got sober, she had a friend that overdosed and died in Kensington and a couple other friends that were still in Kensington living on the street. And so she called a couple of my family members. We have nine brothers and sisters and my mom, and she got a bag of giveaway clothes, some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and a single box of Narcan and she rolled down to Kensington with two or three of my family members including myself and uh, we handed them out and found her friend and let her friend know you know we, you got a bed if you go to rehab if you want to come to this recovery house and she did and her friend got sober for a long time and had two or three really good years and then unfortunately relapsed and passed but that is how the outreach program started it was simply an effort to reach some of our friends that were still getting high. And then the third program, education, started because as that outreach program started, more and more volunteers, friends and family members began to attend with us once a month in Kensington to distribute those clothes and those peanut butter and jellies and that Narcan. We kept encountering people that were overdosing, and most of the folks that were volunteering didn't know how to reverse that overdose, how to use Narcan, essentially. And so Sarah taught the volunteers how to use Narcan every month before our outreach, which was essentially our education program. It was just a quick 15-minute overdose reversal training for our volunteers. And now today, it has completely changed. We travel the state. We train local health departments. We go to colleges. We've done Villanova. We've done Temple. We've done SJU. We've done Drexel, pretty much every college. And now we're really heavily focusing on high schools as teenagers are the fastest growing age group to die of a accidental fatal overdose. And the outreach program has dramatically, and now it's not even outreach, now it's called harm reduction. It has dramatically grown from, you know, that once a month outreach to a brick and mortar location open four days a week in Kensington, where we offer showers and wound care as well as a plethora of other resources, including transportation to rehab and the hospital. And then instead of that once a month outreach, we now go out nine times a month to do street-based events every Tuesday and Thursday night from four to six and every third Saturday from nine to 12. And yeah, that's it. Those are our three programs, housing, outreach, education, and how all three of them started. Wow. That is 
really inspiring. It sounds like you're doing some great work. And I'm sorry to hear about your sister's friend. Uh, yeah. Claudia. Claudia. Yeah, that's that's horrible. But I think the work you're doing is fantastic and seemingly very effective. Um, you mentioned how some of the other rehabilitation programs or halfway houses were really subpar. What are some of the things that Savage Sisters offers that makes your rehabilitation more successful? And I, I know there's a variety of therapies you provide. In what ways does the holistic approach to rehabilitation, you know, really lead to a higher success rate? We provide, as you mentioned, a plethora of, of resources and therapies. And the reason that we provide those, well, I, I shouldn't say the reason, the, the origination of providing those resources was that was what Sarah used in her recovery. So when she first got sober, she started kickboxing because she had a lot of pent-up rage that she needed to let out somehow. And that was a healthy way to do it. Then she started trauma therapy, which was definitely the most effective form of therapy that she used to remain sober. And in addition to that, she did Reiki and yoga. And so when she first opened the house up, she did her very best to provide all of those resources to all of the residents that we had in that house. Now, those resources are not cheap. Some of them are incredibly expensive. So we were completely unable to provide all of them when we first started the organization. However, today we are able to provide every one of our residents with all of those resources if they're willing to take them. Everyone has to uh, participate in at least one form of therapy, um, but you're able to do all four if you want to. We have found that the most effective one, meaning the one that correlates to people staying the longest, so having that long-term rate of recovery, is trauma therapy. So, you know, yoga and kickboxing and Reiki is absolutely fantastic and definitely helps people for sure, but actual cognitive behavioral trauma therapy has shown to have a dramatic increase on long-term recovery rates. 65% of the folks that are coming through our doors are remaining sober for at least a year, but those who are using that trauma therapy have a rate of 89%. So 89% of the people who come through our doors that use trauma therapy are remaining sober for at least a year. So that's absolutely incredible. And it's also, I mean, pretty logical. It makes a lot of sense. You've got a history of trauma and untreated mental health issues amongst the majority of the folks that are coming through our doors who have never had access to therapy services. And now all of a sudden they do. And obviously it's going to have a positive effect on them. As I said, at the beginning, we weren't able to do that because those resources are incredibly expensive. But over the years, we have been able to secure some funding that covered a lot of those therapies. So specifically for the trauma therapy that we have, we get $50,000 a year from Van American Foundation to pay for our residents to access those therapies. We partner with Phoenix Crisis Trauma Center, and they provide that virtual therapy to all of our residents for 60 bucks a session, hour-long session once a week, which it's absolutely incredible. Those rates are pretty hard to come by, if, if not you know, impossible. So big shout out to Phoenix Trauma Centers and uh, Van American for making that possible because otherwise it absolutely wouldn't be and our graduation rates would, I'm sure, be significantly less. But back to the beginning, what you mentioned about the other recovery houses and what resources we offer that differentiate from them. Those recovery houses that I mentioned earlier that Sarah stayed in, they didn't offer anything. They didn't offer any forms of therapy, any alternative therapies, any peer support, literally nothing. They were just there 
to collect your rent check. And if you didn't pay it, you got kicked out, which is also besides the fact that we offer, you know, yoga, Reiki, kickboxing and therapy. We also offer financial support. And I would say that's besides the traditional therapy, the number one difference of our organization compared to others when it comes to housing programs. When you're fresh out of rehab, you've been sober for 30 days, you have no family and no friends. If your housing is dependent upon having $200 a week, which is what a lot of these places are charging. We only charge 150. One, you're going to be incredibly anxious and stressed. And you know, that's a huge trigger to relapsing. And two, you're probably not going to be able to raise that money. And so you're going to get kicked out a week or two in. And again, incredibly stressful and anxiety inducing and most likely going to cause a rehab. So we are lucky enough to be able to provide housing to folks despite not being able to pay for their first one to two to even three months. Sometimes we'll pay that rent ourselves, but most of the time we are able to get their first two weeks, maybe three weeks covered by other organizations like Waves to Wellness and Heather's Way. So they'll provide temporary scholarships just to get them covered for their first two to three weeks, which really reduces their stress. It makes us capable of affording all of the services that we provide and gives them time to really settle in, find a job, all that good stuff. But yeah, the the financial support and then the forms of therapy are probably the biggest differentiators that we have compared to other recovery housing programs. There's also just our leadership. All of our staff have been through our housing program. They're all in recovery. They all have lived experience. They can relate to the people that we're serving and they have compassion for the people that we're serving because they were in their shoes not too long ago. Our programs director, Melanie, who runs the women's program, she came in as a resident. She, you know, she literally came in from rehab with absolutely no money to her name and no support. And she thrived and survived and did therapy and did all that other good stuff. And now she's got two years sober and she's running our women's program and working in our storefront in Kensington every day. You've got Johnny, same exact story. He's leading the men's program, came in as a resident, thrived, survived, and is now leading the men's program. So yeah, just utilizing people who give a shit, who have compassion, who have lived experience, and then adding in those basic resources like therapy, which is so obviously effective and so drastically unavailable to the majority of the folks who are dealing with substance use issues and in early recovery. Medicaid, for example, does not pay for therapy. So people always said, oh, just have them sign up for the Medicaid therapy because everybody coming into our program, it's low barrier housing, low cost housing. None of them have private insurance. I shouldn't say none of them. The vast majority of them are on Medicaid. To get into rehab, you have to get insurance. And so you have to sign up for insurance. And the one that they qualify typically for is Medicaid. And so Medicaid, of course, you can get therapy if you're in Medicaid, but you have to wait six weeks minimum, absolute minimum of six weeks to get signed up. So what happens in the six weeks that you go from rehab to therapy, you relapse and then you don't get therapy because you're getting high on the street. That six weeks can be a death sentence, which is why we don't take insurance in any way, shape or form. It's all private pay and, and donations and all that. And we pay for the therapy ourselves because Medicaid is not going to cut it. One, you don't want to wait six weeks. Two, you don't want to deal with somebody who's completely overworked and overwhelmed, which those Medicaid therapy providers absolutely are. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, enrollment in Medicaid skyrocketed during the pandemic from 71.3 million subscribers to over 80 million in a matter of months. 
Also, in 2020, they reported that 4 in 10 U.S. adults show symptoms of depression and anxiety disorders. In urban settings, there are an average of 6.4 mental health providers that are covered by Medicaid for every 1,000 people enrolled, and 1.8 for every 1,000 in rural and frontier settings. Clearly, there is a big gap of resources for the country's most vulnerable populations. Yeah, it sounds like there's just a big lack of resources publicly available and widely available that y'all provide, thankfully. But are those sort of the areas that you see the biggest lackings in terms of government support or just broad availability of the networks of support that are needed for recovery? Yeah, I would say um, exactly kind of what you just said. The reason that we're providing those resources is because that's where we saw the gap. That's where we saw the need. That's where we saw there was just no resources in that like, of that nature available to the to us um, and to the folks that we serve. We are the folks that we serve. Uh, all of our staff has been served by the work that we do in one way, shape or form. So therapy, housing, nutritional services, alternative therapies, all things that are completely unavailable to the folks that we serve, except for when we're providing them. So, yeah, we saw the need and we filled it. That's kind of the motto of our entire program. There was a need there and we filled it. That's it's just organic reactions to critical needs in our community. And as far as the government supplying these resources or anyone supplying these resources yeah they're starting to pick up and, and get on board i know scattergood is certainly not a government organization but we got a grant from them almost two years ago called the policy meets practice grant and it paid for all of our alternative therapies for a little bit more than a year so the kickboxing the yoga the reiki and the whole idea of it was to take the weight off of therapy providers around the country because they're so dramatically under-resourced. The idea of policy meets practice of the grant was to, instead of harassing our Medicaid providers to provide our residents with therapy services, they were going to pay for us to get alternative therapies, um, which will free up the typical therapy providers and also empower the folks that are providing alternative therapies and receiving alternative therapies to then hopefully be able to turn around after a year of receiving those and administer those therapies themselves. So, for example, our yoga provider taught our yoga students, our residents, how to then teach yoga. So now we've got multiple people who have graduated our program who have gone on to teach other folks yoga and kickboxing, same regard. We had one of our kickboxing students, uh, our residents who really got into kickboxing, go on to become a, a kickboxing teacher himself. And now he's able to teach our residents kickboxing and not only to teach them kickboxing, but to teach them kickboxing in relation to recovery and kind of connect those dots. Um, which him as a person in recovery who used kickboxing in his recovery to stay sober is probably more capable of doing that than even the original provider that we had in the first place, because he's really able to speak to how it affected his recovery and how to connect that to the new residents that are coming in and using kickboxing to help their therapy. The lack of availability of traditional therapy services and alternative therapy services is very significant. It's also something that the local government and funders are completely aware of, and I think they're trying to change that for sure. I think they're trying to add resources, um, but you know, there is just a shortage of resources in general. So there's only so much that they can do. Tied up with addiction, there's a lot of 
prejudice. There's a lot of biases that are held. What are some common misconceptions that we can dissuade or correct to help more people have empathy towards the people that are struggling with these issues? Great question. And I think as far as misconceptions go, I would say medicated assisted treatment is the biggest misconception. People talk about how people aren't sober who are using Suboxone or Methadone or any of those other forms of medicated assisted treatment. And that to me is both insulting and infuriating. When you see somebody come through our program who just came from shooting dope for God knows how long to getting a prescripted medication from their doctor once a week and being able to recreate their lives, get sober, get a job, reconnect with their families, get their children back in their lives and declare to the world, I am sober. I've got 30 days sober. I've got 60 days sober. I've got 90 days sober. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And then the world respond to them with, oh, you're not sober. You're on Suboxone. You're on Methadone. That is infuriating and depressing as hell for the people that have to hear it. Obviously, they're sober. Obviously, they're in recovery. They're just using medication to make sure that they remain in recovery and remain sober. But so many people, because of the old AA speak, essentially, want to say, oh, you're not sober if you're using medicated assisted treatment. And, and to me, that's bullshit through and through. Incredibly harmful. Uh, it's, it's just absolutely demoralizing for people to hear when they're in a meeting telling people, give me my 90 day coin. And somebody says, oh, you're not sober. Uh, That's just a travesty. Uh, Medicated assisted treatment has been proven to be wildly successful um, in regards to keeping people sober. And whether somebody wants to be on Suboxone for 10 years, not wants to, whether someone needs to be on Suboxone for 10 years or needs to be on methadone for six months, uh, you know, it doesn't matter as long as they're not doing the drug of choice that led them to the place that they were in before they got sober and got into recovery. That's an incredible success in my book and in anyone who has any authority on speaking on the matters book for that matter. So that's misconception. Other than misconceptions, I would say ideas that really are just harmful to the recovery community in general, to the people who are actively using substances. People need to really get better about the language that they use when talking about people who are actively using substances or who are in recovery. For example, the main thing that we're seeing nowadays is the use of the word zombie all the time and zombie drugs, zombie this, zombie that. When you think about a zombie, you think about a person who who eats brains and is dead. That's not Uh, an individual who's dealing with a substance use issue. And the amount of times that I see people describing folks on the street as zombies, that's demoralizing for everyone involved, for the family member of the person who's on the street, for the person who's on the street, for for anybody and everyone involved in the situation. People really got to do better about the language that they use. Zombie is not an okay word to use. And then there's other much, much less significant words. People want to debate whether they're okay to use or not. It's not a big deal, in my opinion, but personal first language is, is a big deal. And it's really important that people get on top of it. Words such as, you know, and this is definitely controversial, uh, not controversial, but a lot of people will disagree with me. Clean, like, no, you're not clean. You're sober and you're in recovery. You're not clean because that implies that everyone who's using is dirty. Uh, And that's certainly not the case just because you're actively using substances and dealing with mental health issues and everything else in, in the world. That does not mean you are dirty. Using the word clean, certainly not something that I recommend and I see people use it all the time and I see them, you know, they're not using it in a nefarious way, 
and oftentimes they'll correct themselves and be like, oh, like in their everyday speak, like, oh, I've been clean for six months. I mean, sober for six months. And, you know, it's just it's as simple as that. And it's just something that people are slowly getting out of their dictionaries. As I said, it's not a big deal. People use it all the time. And I don't think they do it in a bad way. However, the idea of that, the idea of using person first language and the idea of, you know, being really careful with our words when we're describing people dealing with substance use issues is something that is really starting to gain some traction. And I think it's incredibly important towards changing the stigma around substance use in general when we start treating people like people instead of criminals. Yeah, 100 percent. I I had never thought about the language aspect of it. But now that you put it in my mind, I see it's very important and probably shifts the way people think about people struggling with substance abuse issues. As reported by the National Institute of Health, there is abundant evidence to prove that medicated-assisted treatment, including methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, all are effective in reducing opioid use and opioid use disorder symptoms. They also have been proven to increase the likelihood that a person will remain in treatment, which has been associated with lower rates of HIV and HCV transmission, reduced involvement in the criminal justice system, and increased employment. Earlier, you had mentioned how it's often really hard for people that are trying to get sober to meet their rent checks or just find the basic necessities. Can you talk about the ways in which substance abuse plays into homelessness and just in general, that cycle? Absolutely. I would even change the way you asked that question to how does homelessness play into substance use? Because a lot of people think, Oh, this guy did drugs for a year and now he's homeless. A lot of time, that's not the way it goes. It's, oh, this guy lost his job and had a bunch of bills that came up and now he's unhoused and now he's doing substances. It's not that substances lead to being unhoused. It's oftentimes that being unhoused leads to using substances. When you live on the street, your life is kind of depressing. You don't have access to basic resources. People talk about mental health issues all the time. Some of my closest friends are therapists and they talk about having to deal with folks who are coming in who are blind, don't have any family members, are broken, are about to get evicted, and they're trying to give them therapy services. It's like nothing you say is going to solve that man's problems because that man's problems have nothing to do with mental health. They have everything to do with poverty. When you're dealing with dramatic levels of poverty, it's going to take a toll on your mental health. And so folks that are becoming unhoused for external reasons that have nothing to do with substance use or mental health are then dealing with substance use and mental health. So how do we deal with that? How do we help that? We we deal with poverty. That That's our number one issue, I think, as a society in general, is the drastic gap between the middle class and the lower class and how the middle class continues to become the lower class when it comes to you know financial security. So yeah, I, I think that's the number one point there is like we really have to acknowledge the fact that substance use is often coming as a response to poverty and, and not the other way around. Because when you think about that, then you think poverty is a choice. Oh, well, this person chose to use those drugs. And it's that's why they're homeless now. It, that's not the case. This person did not choose to lose their job and deal with a bunch of trauma that ended up leading to them becoming homeless and then becoming dependent upon substances. It was not a choice that they made. There was never a choice. And so as a society, as it's our responsibility to support them in any way, shape or form that we possibly can. Now, of course, 
that's not always the case. Of course, there are circumstances where people do start using substances for long periods of time, and it does lead to them becoming unhoused. And oftentimes that's caused by mental health issues in the beginning. It goes both ways, no doubt. But I do think that people assume that it doesn't. They do assume that it is always the one way. It is always the, the substance use is the start. The unhoused is the finish. When I think to, to start this conversation, we do need to acknowledge that that's certainly not always the case. Now, for folks that are dealing with mental health issues and substance issues that do lead to being unhoused, it's, it's definitely very common. And I think it starts with childhood traumas a lot of the time. It has nothing to do with poverty necessarily. You've got kids from very well-to-do families that are becoming dependent upon substance use. And I know in our generation, in my generation specifically, I'm 28 years old. When I was a kid, I didn't know the risk of doing a pill. I didn't know that if I started doing this Percocet or this Xanax, I was going to become chemically dependent upon it in a very short period of time. And that eventually, say I was prescribed to that substance, eventually they were going to take my prescription away and I was going to have to buy it off of the street. And then that substance on the street was going to be laced with fentanyl and I was going to become chemically dependent upon fentanyl from doing a, a pill that I thought was a Percocet. You know, and now I'm doing that for six months and all of a sudden I'm if I don't take this, I'm going to be violently ill. And so I have to spend all of my money on it. And all of a sudden, I'm unhoused and dependent upon fentanyl, you know, so that that's an incredibly common story. It's my sister Sarah's story, for example, she was, you know, in the military, got prescribed Percocets, had her prescription taken away, was already chemically dependent upon them, started buying them off of the street and then realized, okay, these aren't Percocets, these are fentanyl pressed pills. But now I'm a year into fentanyl pressed pills, I'm entirely chemically dependent upon them. And I'm going to spend all of my money and time getting them. And all of a sudden, you know, you're 10 years into being unhoused and you're on the street and you have no idea how you got there at no fault of your own because you were in the military and you had an injury and and that led you to here i mean why do you think we've got billions and billions of dollars being taken from big pharma in lawsuits because what they did was fully conscious they did that entirely on purpose they created the opioid epidemic and they were, were aware of what they were doing and they did it on purpose and now they're being sued for it but they've already come up trillions and whether they're sued or not they're still going to be on top when it comes to finances. So, I mean, that's a little bit off topic, but that's definitely a big root of where these mental health issues correlate to being unhoused. It's, you know, it was caused by big pharma. It was, it was caused by all of that. And then other than that, it's just caused by poverty, which, you know, we know is obviously a big root of all of the issues that everyone we're serving is dealing with. It's so unfortunate. And it seems like almost insurmountable amount of obstacles in society that are just piled up leading people into these really challenging situations to get out of exactly yeah, the insur i like your word the, the word your use of the word insurmountable in that situation because it's so many different things all coming together at once to lead people to this very dark road that they're on and uh, it's just it's overwhelming to think about because where do you even start to solve the problems. And that's where Savage comes in, you know, where do you even start? And that's, that's kind of what we were just like, with the most basic of needs, that's it, you know, a, 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 a shower, some wound care, transportation to rehab, according to data and statistics, the number one barrier between unhoused folks accessing rehab is a ride to rehab. It's transportation. It's the number one barrier that they face. So what do we do? It's very simple. You offer a ride. Wow. Do you have any advice for 
people who are maybe unconnected to the issue or just people that would like to get involved? What is the best way they can make an impact? How can they get involved either with your organization or with other organizations? How can people do the most good? There are three things people can do, both for my organization and every other organization. You can donate, volunteer, and share. So obviously, most of these organizations are nonprofits that are working in harm reduction and recovery, uh, and they're entirely dependent upon you donating. So that's the number one thing you can do, 100%, no doubt. Second thing you can do is volunteer. So uh, Savage Sisters, for example, during those street-based outreaches we talked about earlier, only three staff members attend those. The other seven to eight people are volunteers. They're not getting paid. They're nurses that are coming out after their long day at the hospital, and they're coming to go wrap somebody's ulcer out in the street after working 12 hours and, you know, just wanting to give back to the community. So volunteering is a huge one, especially in Philadelphia. If you have wound care experience, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, and you can come out and volunteer your services, not just with Savage Sisters, but with a plenty of other organizations, the Everywhere Project, Operation in My Backyard, Unity Recovery, Prevention Point. In Philadelphia, all of those organizations are dependent upon volunteers. So by all means, find a time that you can go and go volunteer and, and see the work that these organizations are doing on a first person level and do it. Do the work yourself. Why not? What's holding you back? Everybody has an hour here and there that they can dedicate. So if you don't have the money to, to donate, please show up and volunteer. The third thing you can do is advocate. So share on social media, anti-stigmatizing language. Talk to your friends and family about not using stigmatizing language, not referring to people as zombies, discussing the fact that substance use disorder is a disease. It is not a choice. Um, there is still such a, I don't even know what the word here is, an idea that addiction is a choice. It's still rampant, you know, even though scientists and, and all the authorities on the matter have come out and say, this is not is not a disease, even though, you know, Sackler and Purdue are being sued for billions of dollars for causing this epidemic. People are still saying, oh, no, this was a choice. These people chose to do this. I would say the number one thing that leads to the scenario that we're in today is our society's complete lack of ability to acknowledge substance use as a disease and to treat it as a disease. If we treated this like cancer, none of these issues would be occurring, but we criminalize people instead. The National Institute of Health defines drug addiction as chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite adverse consequences. It is considered a brain disorder because it involves functional changes to brain circuits involved in reward, stress, and self-control. Those changes may last a long time after a person has stopped taking drugs. Addiction, like a lot of other diseases, such as heart disease, both disrupt the normal healthy functioning of an organ in the body. Both have serious harmful effects, and both are, in many cases, preventable and treatable. If left untreated, they can last a lifetime and may lead to death. And so you have what we have today, an open air drug market on the streets of Kensington. You have people who are stuck using substances on the side of the road in front of people's houses. So when kids come out, you know, they have to see somebody who just took a shit on their sidewalk, shooting up a needle in their neck. You know, nobody wants to see that. No children want to see that. The solution is really simple. You, you, you implement safe consumption sites. Now, Savage Sisters is not going to do that. All of our staff are in recovery. We're not going to be able to 
watch people get high on a daily basis. That's not our goal. Our goal is to have our drop-in center and to allow people to take showers and wound care and get sober. That's what we want. But we're still going to advocate for the city to open up a safe consumption site because I get the principle behind, I disagree with it, but I do understand the principle behind, no, we're not going to give somebody a safe consumption site because that's like telling them it's okay to do drugs. Okay, so you'd rather have them do the drugs on your resident's sidewalk and on their front steps so that they have to come out and and be traumatized by that on a daily basis. Uh, Like I get the principle, but let's be real. I didn't mention this. If you're, it doesn't matter if you're in school, if if you're a student, if you're a teacher, at a college, at a high school, if you go to church every Sunday, if you run a business and you have a large group of employees, if you're an employee at a large business, reach out to your local harm reduction organization and ask them to come do an overdose prevention and reversal training at your workplace, at your place of learning, at your place of worship, whatever it is. If you live in Philadelphia and you do not have Narcan and know how to use it, you are lacking, in my opinion. There are so many places that you can get trained and get Narcan, and you can do it for free. You go on nextdistro.org, they'll mail you Narcan as long as you attend this quick 30-minute virtual Zoom on how to use it. Obviously, Savage Sisters does Narcan trainings all the time. You can email us at info at savagesisters.org. We will come to you, we will give you Narcan, and we will show you how to use it. So those are the four things that you can do. Donate, volunteer, end the stigma, and get trained. I just want to start by saying thank you. There's so much that needs to be done. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think one last topic I'd like to touch on is um, maybe two topics. The first being xylazine entering the drug pool. How has that impacted you guys? And what have you seen sort of as a macro trend as this shift has occurred? So Zalazine has been an epic disaster. There are three main things that uh, it has done to our work or three ways that it has affected us. So one is in regards to overdoses, two is in regards to wounds, and three is in regards to withdrawal. I'll cover each real quick. So the first one is overdoses. Xylazine is not an opioid. Narcan does not work on xylazine, as Narcan only works on opioids. So if you're encountering somebody who is dealing with an overdose, obviously you're going to Narcan them because you're going to assume that opioids are what they're overdosing from. However, what people don't know is xylazine is in 91% of the drug supply. Most likely they're also overdosing from that xylazine. And so what we've done is we've implemented oxygen so that our team, when they're out in the street doing outreach, when they're at our storefront, they're always prepared for an overdose, not in, but outside of the location. Um, And so we carry around oxygen tanks with us so that when we are reversing an overdose, once we hit them with that dose of Narcan, we immediately start doing oxygen as xylazine is a respiratory suppressant and they're not getting oxygen to their brain while that Narcan is kicking in and just in general because of the xylazine. Whenever we encounter an overdose, they won't come back if all you do is Narcan. You really do need to start uh, administering oxygen. So obviously not everyone has oxygen on them all the time. In fact, no one does. So what we do is during our trainings, we teach people how to do rescue breathing. So obviously, as I said, you don't always have oxygen, but you do always have your mouth. So you can always do mouth to mouth and you can always do rescue breathing. Um, So that was really, really tough for us at first. We didn't have oxygen and we kept encountering people who weren't waking up from Narcan. We began doing the rescue breathing and it's a brutal process. You know, when you, you administer Narcan, 
And then for three to five minutes, you, you have to do rescue breathing. And then if they don't come back, you have to administer another Narcan. And then if they don't come back from that, administer three to five more minutes of rescue breathing. We've done up to 15 minutes. Rescue breathing is really hard. You have to do three strong breaths, count to five, three strong breaths, count to five. It's physically exhausting. It's also emotionally exhausting because each breath you're like, please come back. Is this person going to come back or are they going to die in front of me? So that's been really, really hard. When we finally got our oxygen tanks, that was a huge blessing. However, since then, I have encountered multiple people on the street when I wasn't working and I have had to do rescue breathing. And it's it's awful, especially for random people in the street. I don't like germs. So dude had blood all over his mouth, unconscious, his lips are turning blue. I don't want to do mouth to mouth, but what are you going to do? You're going to let the guy die in front of you? So xylazine has been awful, especially in regards to the overdoses. Just to clarify, if you're ever reversing an overdose um, in this day and age, you do the Narcan and then you do the rescue breathing. You have to do the rescue breathing or otherwise the person's not going to get oxygen to their brain. And if they do wake up, they're going to forget who they are, where they are, all that. You don't want somebody to have brain damage um, once they wake up. So do rescue breathing. The second thing is the wounds. So I'm sure you're probably aware of that as it's all over the news, the media, they've done a whole thing about it. Uh, They love to talk about the wounds and show the wounds because they're nasty and they get a lot of attention. But the lack of awareness on all the other subjects is a bit frustrating. Bottom line, though, the wounds are major. They are causing people's limbs to be amputated. They're causing people's immune systems to be compromised. But essentially, xylazine, it's in 91% of the drug supply in Philadelphia. It therefore is in everybody's system if they're doing illicit substances and therefore everyone is getting those wounds what happens is it does something to your blood vessels where they constrict and so whether you're injecting smoking snorting it doesn't matter you're going to develop these wounds if you're using these substances if you get a a scratch from a cat on your arm it's going to turn into a giant open wound and an ulcer it's not going to heal unless you stop using xylazine the only thing we've been able to do in response to that is wound care on site that's why we talked about it earlier we have these volunteer nurses coming out and doing wound care at our storefront and out in the street we do this to help people to ensure that they aren't losing their limbs that their immune system isn't becoming further compromised leading to you know of more likely of an overdose and three so that they can go to rehab because if you're going to rehab and you have an open wound, they're going to turn you away when you get there and tell you to go to the hospital. Now, what are you going to do after you've just waited God knows how long to get into the rehab? Sometimes it takes six, 12 hours. You're in the evaluation center. You're trying to get transportation. You finally show up. You're already going through withdrawal because you took six to 12 hours and they tell you, sorry, you got to go to the hospital now and wait another 12 hours while they wrap your wounds. What are you going to do? You're going to go out and get high again. Of course, you're not going to go to the hospital. So it's incredibly frustrating stuff. It's a really easy solution for that. Rehabs need to just have wound care on site. It's not hard. If we can have wound care uh, on the street, you can have wound care in your rehab. Like, let's go. Come on, get your shit together, rehabs. So that's the second thing is the wounds. Um, And then the third thing is the withdrawal. So another area where the rehabs are seriously lacking in in ethics and responsibility um we're dealing with folks weeks on end they're coming in they're getting resources they're, they're getting help they're connecting they're be, they're developing trust with our staff and they're finally getting to the point where it's like okay i'm gonna go to rehab i'm done i'm done on the street it is what it is they go to rehab 
and they're there for two days and they get violently ill because the rehab isn't treating for xylazine withdrawal because xylazine, as I said earlier, is not an opioid. When you go into rehab, they test you for what's in your system and then they treat you for whatever's in your system for the withdrawal that you're inevitably going to get. And so you go and you get tested and the only thing that shows up is opioids because you're on Trancto, fentanyl and xylazine. They're not testing for xylazine. So they're only treating for the opioids. And so you're not getting sick from the opioid withdrawal. You're getting sick from the xylazine withdrawal. Within three days, you're violently ill. What are you going to do? You're going to leave and they'll get high again. So it's incredibly frustrating for us to work with people, get them to the point where they're finally willing to, you know, go save their own lives and, and recreate their lives and go to rehab and do what they got to do. And the rehab is just not taking care of them. And so they're leaving and they're coming back out and they're getting high again. And then they're overdosing and dying because when you go to rehab for three days, your tolerance goes away. And what happens when you go get high again? You overdose. So really simple solution for that. Rehabs need to test for xylazine so that they can then treat for the withdrawal. The issue, of course, with that is you have to test for it to treat for it because insurance companies aren't going to pay for the withdrawal medication for xylazine unless they can prove that xylazine is in their system. So the first step is testing for it. The second step is treating for that withdrawal. Gaudenzia is the only rehab I know of that is treating and testing for xylazine. Um, we already have the answer, you know, to to the treatment for the xylazine. It's not like some big mystery, like, oh, well, how do we treat for that withdrawal if it's not an opioid? No, we, we have the treatment plan. We know what the withdrawal medications are. It's basically the same as a benzo withdrawal. There's documented evidence of what works. It's really easy to implement. It's just the, the rehabs need to bite the financial bullet and begin testing for it. But obviously... As corporations tend to go, they're not willing to bite that financial bullet and test for it. On Gaudenzia, big props to them. They are. Those are the three things. So wounds, overdoses, and withdrawal. That's how xylazine has affected us. Hmm. Have you have you seen any improvements? Anything like just to be hopeful about? Yeah. Dramatic improvements. Oh, yeah, for sure. Two, in 2018, just talking to people about the work that I did, would, would the reaction would be a scowl. I have seen wild levels of improvement in regards to the stigma around substance use as a whole. I think society and the government and, and local policymakers and, and activists have definitely done a good job in bringing awareness to the fact that substance use disorder is a disease. I think that the deaths of Thousands and thousands of Americans also played a role in that because people realized like, oh, this is this could happen to anybody, yada, yada, which really it shouldn't have taken that to get us to that point. Like, you know, I got to be honest, that's part of the fact part of the reason for that is just how racist our society has always been until it was white people who are middle class that were dying from these overdoses. You know, nobody really cared. And there was never any idea of implementing an overdose um, but now that it's white people who are middle class and upper class dying we want to take action it's frustrating you know that that pisses me off just to think about but at the same time you know it's if we implement these resources it's going to serve not only those middle class white people but also black and brown folks that have been dying for decades it's very unfortunate and frustrating that this is what it took to get our society to respond but i'm glad that we're responding nonetheless because it is going to serve everybody in addition to the the improvements on the stigma that i've seen i've also seen a major improvement by the state of pennsylvania in regards to recovery housing um december of 2021 we implemented 
regulations for recovery houses. So up until December of 2021, there was no way to register as a recovery house in Pennsylvania. There was no way to get zoned or get your occupancy or anything like that. Recovery houses just weren't legal entities up until December of 2021. As of December of 2021, the Department of Drug and Alcohol Programs implemented a program where you can register as a recovery house. And you do have to go through a horribly difficult, tedious process to do that, I would say that DDAPs could be a little bit more efficient in the way that they implemented that. They definitely made it really hard to the extent that was unnecessary, in my opinion. And a lot of organizations are choosing not to follow up with them and and get registered, um, which is pretty frustrating. So they could do better there. But I'm just glad that we as an organization were able to at least register and become recognized as a legal and official entity, which we never were able to do before. What I was hoping for with these regulations was that all of those horribly unethical recovery homes that are out there that are run by people simply trying to make a dollar, those women's recovery homes owned by men and all that horrible stuff. I was really hoping that these regulations would crack down on them and and get them shut down. But unfortunately, that's not happening at all because there are no consequences to not registering as a recovery house. There are, you know, there are some benefits to, to registering. You get you know, recognized as a legal entity by the government. You can give landlords your certification, whereas previously you couldn't. And so, you know, most landlords won't rent to you in that situation. Obviously, we we operate nine houses. We rent them all. We don't have the financial capacity to own any of the buildings that we operate. So we're dependent upon these random Philadelphia homeowners to rent to us. Um, and without any sort of legal registration, there's no way to do that. So that was one benefit of it. But as I said, it's it, they needed to take it a step further because recovery houses that are unethical are not facing any consequences from not registering with the state. The only consequence is you can't get federal funding. None of those programs were getting federal funding in the first place. They're operating because they're charging their residents absorbent amounts per week to stay at their house. So it really has no effect on those unregistered unethical homes. Um, but nonetheless, it's a step, you know, we're, we're going in the right direction. Hopefully they'll take it a step further soon enough. But yeah, th- those are the only positive changes that I can really say the government and our society has taken. Well, I'm sure this is a lot. I hope you're taking care of yourself in the way you need. I can only imagine the stress, but I want to say thank you for coming and talking with me today. This has been super informative. I know that I learned a lot, and I'm sure that the listeners will too. This has been great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. As Adam mentioned, Savage Sisters relies on funding and volunteering from people like you and me. You can learn more about Savage Sisters and how to donate and volunteer or host an overdose reversal education session with them at www.savagesisters.org.